I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 18 through 29, the letter to the church in Thyatira. So we come now to the fourth in this series of seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor. Recall the location of these churches is probably following a something of a postal route. In fact, the last five churches are right along a, a road, um, an ancient road that was used for um, those who were delivering messages. So it's a, it's a mixed community here in Thyatira that represents the makeup of the broader visible church at all times. It's the longest letter, and it's positioned right in the center of the bunch, so we would do well to pay attention to its message. I, I want to start by saying I, I think the, the way we preach here, expository preaching, which is taking, you know, at least chunks of Scripture at a time and working your way through it. Um, our practice is to take a book of the Bible and, and work, work through it, chapter by chapter, um, even verse by verse. And so that forces me to address all kinds of sin, all kinds of challenges that we face in the Christian life. If I always focused on pet sins, I'm likely not being faithful to the text if I was constantly harping on one particular thing. However, where Scripture addresses cultural idols, it does command our attention, and we should not shy away from making that connection explicit. The heart of this letter is sexual immorality. It's at the heart of this text from verses 20 through 23, and the perversions of idolatry that wrapped themselves up with political and social agendas in the first century are parallel uh, with the 21st century perversions that we face. Sexual immorality in all of its forms are condemned in Scripture. God has given us a wonderful gift to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And then what God made beautiful, man corrupts by promiscuity and homosexuality and every other form in between. The prevalence of pornography encourages children to explore their preferences at increasingly younger ages. And while the culture deems abstinence, archaic, and same-sex attraction, natural. We must hold fast to the word of truth as it's been revealed and condemn what the culture accepts. Can we love the sinner without blurring the lines of their sin? That's been the challenge that we've faced since the first century, as you'll see. Before then, frankly. In the time man was created. God seems to have a special hatred for sexual sin. Yes, Scripture mentions plenty of other sins, but this one in particular receives repeated attention throughout the Old and New Testament. The prophets frequently spoke of idolatry in terms of adultery and prostitution. Read Hosea, for example. And so it illustrates our utter depravity quite well. If you want to talk about sin, you can probably just use language in terms that relates to sexual immorality, and it fits. 
and where Jesus speaks so clearly, the church must not be silent. And so the consequences of sex is calling the church in Thyatira to do, to deal with the sin that is among them. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know it is truth. Lord, it is the revelation of our creator, our maker, our sovereign. And so even when everyone else disagrees with what we read in your word, Lord, we must hold fast to what we've received. So help us, Lord, to understand this letter. Though it was written to a first century church there in Asia Minor, it makes perfect sense for us. We need to heed its warning. We need to receive it and then, and then prepare our children and raise them up under the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when they face the temptations of this world, that they will be strong and re- remember the promises that you've given them, that they far outweigh any fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer. May that truth sink in for each one of us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth and soften our hearts to receive it. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Read with me, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as we've seen in each of these letters, the first opening line there in sentence is a reference to the vision of the Son of Man that we saw at the end of chapter 1. So the portrayal of Jesus in this opening verse should strike fear in the heart of the compromised Christian. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
With his fiery eyes, Jesus searches the hearts and minds of men, as we see in verse 23, and he will prove that to them in his judgment. With his bronze feet, the wicked are trampled, fulfilling Isaiah 63. Michael Wilcock comments this, Christ of the piercing eyes and the trampling feet comes to her like the sun shining in full strength, infinitely more terrible than the pagan sun god Apollo whose temple at Thyatira was famous. As we've seen in each one of these cities, there were idols and temples of all kinds within the city. And this was a smaller place, but they, they were just as idolatrous. And they worshipped Apollo, the sun god, and they had trade guilds, which each one of them probably worshipped some other pagan god, which they would sacrifice uh, food to and then enjoy a feast together. It was all wrapped up in the economy. If you wanted to advance in your business, you had to join one of these trade guilds in order to have that community of of, uh, that network of of people who you would do business with, whom you might trade with. But it was all closely knit together with idolatry. But before we get to the warning, we begin with a word of commendation here. Verse 19, Jesus reflects upon the community as a fruitful community. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance that your latter works and that your latter works exceed the first. So Thyatira let me just go into a little more detail here. Thyatira was 25,000 people. It was located 40 miles southeast of Pergamum along the same road that, that um, followed down from Pergamum. And Rome had to place a garrison there. You typically wouldn't see a garrison in such a small town, but because it was so close to, to Pergamum, which was the capital there in that region, uh, they, and the, because of the location of Thyatira, kind of in between two valleys, um, there was a lot of attack. It was the, a place of frequent attack, constantly switching hands um, between various nations. So Rome placed a garrison there, and Johnson writes, lacking religious and political significance, Thyatira's identity was molded by commerce and manufacturing industries, each dominated by a trade guild dedicated to a patron god or goddess. So there were guilds for wool dealers, potters, linen weavers, tanners, leather workers, and coppersmiths. They had just about everything you could imagine there represented. The guilds were influential civically and religiously. Right? Although the, the city itself was not that influential, the, the trade guilds were heavily influential upon the city's practice of religion and their civic authorities. So they would gather for feasts and observe observe pagan rituals offering meat to their god and then sharing it with the party guests after it had been offered. And then as the event wore on, there was an overindulgence in food and alcohol which would spill into debauchery of every kind. So this makes Lydia's conversion that much more remarkable. You recall in Acts 16, Lydia was said to be a seller of purple, whether that be a seller of dye, purple dye or fabric. She was a dealer. She, would, she went to Philippi to, to sell her goods, and there came across Paul, who was preaching. And, and she did have some sense of fear for God. She was a worshiper of God, it says. But she had no understanding 
of the gospel. So she was a God-fearer. She may have feared several gods, in fact, if she was like everyone else in Thyatira. But she heard the gospel proclaimed and she responded, and it's a beautiful illustration of the impact of the gospel in a person's life as she is transformed and ends up inviting and hosting Paul and Silas in her home, showing them hospitality. Before um, Jesus, though, condemns Thyatira, he, he writes this, these words of commendation. Right? I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance. Jesus summarizes the fruit of Thyatira in a single sentence there. He says, I know your works. I know your works. I see all the good works that you are doing. You are filled with love and faith. I see that. You serve and patiently endure. You, these things don't save you, but they are good and they are pleasing in my sight. As the world sees your light shining, you are bringing glory to your Father in heaven. This is what Jesus is telling these believers there. The list of qualities of the church is no less impressive for its brevity. These are the visible evidences of the Spirit's work in their church. They are a true church possessing real fruit, Spirit-wrought faith. In fact, they are growing in these attributes so that their latter works exceed the first. They're maturing. Fruit provides hope here for future purification. He's commending them in this. He's saying, continue to allow this fruit to to bear out in every aspect of your life because there are some things that you're still holding on to. But our motives are, are so easily tripped up by our deceiving hearts. Even our best works are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. We seem to make so little progress in our sanctification that we are tempted to think very little about it. Let's just focus upon our justification. It's as if we respond to Jesus giving us this commendation and we say, I appreciate what you're trying to do, Lord, but honestly, none of that really matters. My works are just filthy rags in your sight. Let's just talk about what you've done for me. Oh, that's not the response. We should receive his commendation. We can all agree that the perfect righteousness of Christ provides a much better foundation for our salvation, absolutely, than our sin-filled attempts at good works. It's absolutely true as the grounds of our justification. Our good works cannot merit pardon from sin. Nothing we ever do can bring us peace with God. Nothing we do can bring peace with God. That is accomplished by Christ and received by faith. It is wholly dependent upon grace. But true justification is always and necessarily followed and confirmed by a lively sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that is a good thing to celebrate. It is a daily struggle for growing Christians to walk by the Spirit and not by our sinful flesh. 
And that battle may leave us drained and weary, but hear this truth. Jesus notices and appreciates your good works. He is pleased to witness and reward your sincere love, faith, service, and patient endurance, although it is accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections because we have been accepted through Christ, so our good works are accepted in him. However, although this church was fruitful, although believers in this church were fruitful, they, there was some rotten fruit among them that had to be thrown out. It was a compromised community. And that's what's described in verses 20 through 23. It is given the name Jezebel, right, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. When Israel's king Ahab married Jezebel, the she was the daughter of the king of Sidonians. They led the, the nation to worship Baal. And Jezebel was a cunning and brutal queen. You can read it, her story in 1 Kings 16 and 21. And her name became a byword in Israel for sexual and spiritual idolatry. That's described in 2 Kings. So apparently there's a Jezebel like individual, or possibly a group of individuals, it's just described as Jezebel here, who was seducing people to commit sexual immorality and enjoy the pagan feasts of the trade guilds. Right? If what we know of the trade guilds is true, then it makes sense that this person was saying, Christians, you're never going to have any impact here in Thyatira unless you actually enjoy the feasts that they're throwing. If you keep cutting yourselves off from this opportunity to be a light and a witness, then we might as well just lock the doors now. We might as well just hunker down and do nothing. They're facing the same challenges that they faced in Pergamum. To How can you be in the world and not of it? Well, Jezebel was encouraging them to go far, much further than they were willing or than truth would allow. She was saying, we can, we can expect people or we, we can't expect people to give up their careers for Christ. She even declared herself to be a prophetess. Maybe she was saying, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophetess, and I can't get anyone to listen. So we're on the brink of defeat. If we don't change our strategy, we should recognize that participation in these festivities is just a physical act. It doesn't have any effect on our faith. We know these gods are not real, like our God. We can participate in their gatherings without a sense of guilt. Let us come alongside them, show them that we can live as they live, but believe differently. And then maybe we'll find people willing to hear the gospel. As if what that offers is the true gospel. They needed to reject her. They needed to reject this false teaching. Like Pergamon, they were compromised by false teachers who encouraged worldliness, interaction and engagement with the pagan culture. They were communing with false teachers rather than excommunicating them as they should have. And so it was not possible for them to separate their physical lives from their spiritual lives. 
The gospel changes everything. To be together for the gospel will necessarily separate us from particular practices of the world. So Jesus called Jezebel to repent, but she refused and she forfeited her opportunity and now she was going to face judgment. And those who have been enticed by her would receive the same judgment if they likewise refuse to repent. The toleration of sexual immorality is not new. This isn't the first time they faced it. Paul condemned the Corinthians for tolerating it to a degree that was worse than the pagans, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Peter spoke of false teachers who feast with the church while their eyes are full of adultery and they have an insatiable appetite for sin with which they entice unsteady souls. They take the weak among us and they entice them. Jude wrote about those who had crept into the church and turned the grace of God into sensuality. It was a common problem for the early church. This is the primary tactic that Satan will use again at the end of time. Right, we'll see this same theme again in chapters 14, 17, 18, and 19 as the harlot of Babylon wreaks havoc upon the world and leads many away from the worship of God. Satan has already used the toleration of unrepentant sexual immorality to devastate many fruitful churches. Churches that were growing and maturing in many ways allowed sexual immorality to devastate their community. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. James 4, 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We have been set apart. We must, we must reject what the culture accepts. Rick Phillips says, the cost of being faithful to Christ was made poignant when an early church leader, Tertullian, rebuked a believer for participating in idolatry because of his business. The man defended his sin, saying, after all, I must live. Tertullian answered, must you? Do you really have to live? Can Christ sustain you? It's critical that we see repentance as a saving grace. Repentance is not something that we can cause to happen on our own. That's what makes it grace. It's something that is a gift from God. We need the grace of God to be at work in our lives. That grace is, is needed in order to have an accurate understanding of two things, an accurate understanding of our sin and of an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Both ideas are important for repentance to be effective. You, you, you don't minimize your sin. You treat it exactly as God treats it. And then you go to the only source in Christ's mercy for forgiveness and pardon. And so we could easily stop there and appreciate that. But what exactly does the grace of God accomplish in our lives? The grace of God through repentance is accomplishing the, the empowering to turn away from sin with grief and hatred while turning to God 
And secondly, it gives us this endeavoring after a new obedience with full purpose. Has the recognition of your sin brought such a sense of grief and hatred that you felt no option but to turn away from it? Were you filled with ambition to obey God? That's true repentance. Well, not everyone in the church had fallen for Jezebel and her teaching. We read in verses 24 through 29 of this remnant. There was a a remnant of believers in Thyatira who had not heard Jezebel's teaching or been enticed by her immorality. Listen to verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Those who, re, those who had, had been steadfast and not listening to her, and not listening to the, the teaching that is described here as the deep things of Satan. They've got to hold on. See, to suggest that we are, are free to sin, to, to suggest that we are free to enjoy what these trade guilds were offering does not represent a deeper form of Christianity, but bondage to Satan. It is the deep things of Satan. Jesus did not give this group any additional commands, just as the Jerusalem council had done in Acts 15. They were simply encouraged to hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast to the truth. Don't compromise what you've received. Far from lightening up their standards, Christ calls us to cling to them tighter. The church can become compromised in a number of ways, but it always begins with the loosening of our grip upon the truth of God's word. That's how it began among those who turned away from the truth and listened to Jezebel. Those who repent of their compromise or remain faithful until the end. Those who conquer and who keep my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Verse 26. We will be rewarded with authority over the nations. The present culture is reversed in heaven. Those who have all the power on this earth will be shattered by those who have been united to the reigning king. They will rule with a rod of iron, which means they will be ruling alongside and in the power of the Lord. You'll see the same reference to the rod of iron, but it's in the hands of the Lord bringing judgment. So they have the authority to destroy like a clay dish that is shattered into pieces. All of this imagery comes directly from Psalms chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which describes the son who possesses the nations as a heritage and rules over them with a rod of iron. This is a picture of his power to bring wrath upon the earth. But there's also a promise of blessing to those who take refuge in him. So Vern Poitras says this, all rebellion is forcibly wiped out. Christians now know that the destruction of rebellion takes two very different forms, repentance and faith in Christ lead to 
crucifying the old rebellion of Christians, whereas the fire of hell ends the rebellion of the unrepentant. Very similar to what we just read in Ezekiel 9. Their authority is also likened to the authority that Jesus received from the Father, an authority that is omnipotent and all-powerful. And so this is clearly a, a heavenly authority, a divine reign that we are united to at the end of our lives or at the end of time, whichever comes first, the end of this age when Christ returns. And so finally, they will also receive the morning star. There's this promise, and I will give him the morning star in verse 28. Later on, Jesus will refer to himself as the bright morning star. Revelation twenty two sixteen. So much like we saw last week with Pergamum, Jesus is promising to give more of himself to those who conquer. And it points forward to a day when the light from the lampstand of the church will be eclipsed by the light of the brightest star. No longer far off in the distance, but moved in among them to share in the reign of God for all eternity. And so that's the, the reign that is promised here. Right? A, a a fruitful community, which was also a compromised community, will now become a reigning community. A reigning community will result from an uncompromising community. But an uncompromising community doesn't have to be a graceless community. All right, we must be loving and compassionate like a doctor diagnosing a disease, but we must speak the truth regardless of how much it hurts to hear. One statistic I read this week was when a study was done in 2011 of the church, and it read that 37% of women obtaining abortions identify themselves as Protestant Christians. 37% of women obtaining abortions, which obviously is the result of sexual immorality. Unplanned pregnancies. So we can safely assume that our children are hearing the culture loud and clear. The statistics are only increasing. And so on that note, I would like to say something that I think is important. It's, it's one that I, I, I've been holding on to for a while for the right passage. But if, if one of our own children became pregnant out of wedlock, we have to be capable of receiving the news as a church with a willingness to surround her with the kind of support she will need so that it is abundantly obvious that abortion is not the only option. I believe the reason why, at least partially why, this statistic is increasing is because young women are so terrified of how the church will react if they find out that they were being promiscuous. And so because of that, they keep, they keep it hidden. They go to Planned Parenthood to deal with their problem. So 
unwittingly by elevating sexual sin so high, which I don't want to compromise, we might push our children in the direction of creating an even greater sin. So terrified. So let me be clear about this. The child that is conceived as the natural result of sexual sin is not the problem. That child is a precious gift from God who is made in his image from conception. May this church never be a place where a woman feels like her only option is to eliminate the life in her womb in order to save face. We can and must condemn the sin while extending compassion and love to the sinner. That is the result of a lively, spirit-wrought acting out of our faith. Where there can be a pursuit of fruitfulness that pleases our Lord. A repenting of compromise that corrupts the purity of the church. A willingness to receive rebuke and admonition. And then a hope in a future reign because we've been united to Christ for all eternity. That is a good thing to hope for. So let us ask the Lord for that now. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to experience a greater sense of unity with our Lord and Savior. Lord, where we have compromised, where we've been blinded by our own sin, show us. Illuminate the darkness in our lives and cause us by your spirit to respond in repentance, to receive the rebuke and admonition of your word, to repent of a wayward thought, Repent of a wayward lifestyle that has toyed around with sin, that has treated it flippantly. Lord, protect this church from the dangers of that kind of sin that that would devastate it, destroy it, as we've seen happen in history. Help us to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And by holding fast to that, we can both condemn sin and love those who fall into sin and show compassion and grace, even as you've done time and time again for us. As you work the gospel deeper into our own lives, may it bear out in fruit in our families, in our workplaces, in our community. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.